You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This year, the growth in fraud has been tremendous because of each of us living our lives, whether we work, we play, we live online. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Carrie O'Connor Kolaja from Authentics on fraud in the financial services and payment industry and how organizations are using emerging technical solutions to help combat it. All right, Joe, interesting stories we've got to share this week. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm going to kick things off for us. This is uh, from the National Law Review, and uh, this is usually a story I would probably uh, share (laughs) on the caveat show with with, with my pal Ben Yellen. That's usually where we get things from the National Law Review. But this has a social engineering angle to it. Oh, very good. And and a bit of, um, well, I guess a cautionary tale. So what they're covering here is that someone got scammed in the course of selling a home, in the process of transferring funds with the title company. You know, when you buy or sell a home, there are, of course, large amounts of money that get sent back and forth. And you have a title company who helps you with that real estate transaction. And as we've talked about here, that is an area that scammers have focused on in trying to grab those funds, hundreds of thousands of dollars quite often. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a case where that happened. A mortgage lender got scammed. Someone used an email address that was one letter off from the mortgage lender's actual email address. And the scammers had uh, gotten the funds. It was uh, $520,000. Wow. That's a lot of money, Dave. That's half a million dollars. (laughs) <laughs> Boy, nothing gets by you, Joe. No, man, I'm good at this. <laughs> so in this case, over half a million dollars was transferred and taken. But what this story is really about is that the title company went to their insurance company and yeah. then said, hey, uh, we, have a, we have a little problem here. Uh, <laughs> we would like right. to make a claim on our insurance policy. And their insurance policy had an exclusion for... Theft, stealing, conversion, embezzlement, or misappropriation of funds or accounts. It was in their policy called the theft exclusion. This was their errors and omissions insurance policy, which is a... Uh, Okay, errors and omissions. All right. Funny that you should mention this. Uh, (laughs) You can buy errors and omissions insurance, and that protects you from liability uh, via insurance in the event that, like, let's say this title company made an error in who it assigned the ownership of the house to. Right. Right. Now, the person who thinks they're the owner of the house actually isn't the owner of the house, but it's somebody else. This is kind of a bizarre example here that I'm just coming up with off the top of my head. But a better example would be if you're a tax preparer, right, Mm. and you make an error on the taxes and the person gets audited and the IRS says, "Okay, now you owe us you know, $1,000 in extra taxes. And by the way, you also owe us another $1,000 in penalties and interest. The person who owes the taxes could say the penalties and interest are actually the responsibility of my tax preparer, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go after him for that. And that's the point in which the tax preparer will go, well, uh, okay, I have 
errors in omission insurance, this is obviously an error. Let me make a claim on my insurance. Right, right. So it's protecting you against yourself. You, you, exactly. You can, an insurance company is willing to, for a fee, protect you against any mistakes you might make. And mm-hmm. and, and that's a very common thing, as you say, in business. If, if you're in business, chances are you have an errors and omissions policy. Like if you're on a board of directors for a nonprofit, you'll have an errors and omission policy. It's just standard stuff. When um, the insurance company said, no, no, we're not going to allow this, the uh, title company took them to court. And there was a New Jersey federal court who decided that, no, the theft exclusion stands and uh, you're not entitled to insurance money for this. But I think the greater lesson here is that you need to be really careful these days more than ever about what you are covered for in your insurance policies. When it comes to a a lot of this cyber stuff, it's complex. It is, uh, it's evolving. It's changing. The policies are changing. The the fees for things are changing. So it's really important to have a insurance agent that you feel as though you have a good relationship with that you can go through and just ask all those questions. Am I covered for this? Can I get that in writing? Am I covered for this? Can I get that in writing? This is exactly the kind of thing that a cyber policy would cover you against, though. I really don't think this is something that the narrows and emissions policy could be reasonably expected to cover. This is not your mistake. This is somebody maliciously going after you. An errors and emission policy is not designed or priced to protect you against that kind of activity. Right, right. I mean, this is as if you had handed over the half a million dollars in cash to the title company. The title company locked it in a safe on premises. And in the middle of the night, somebody came and broke into the title company and stole all that cash. Yep. That's basically what happened here. So they should have some sort of theft policy. Yeah, that's the physical analog. Exactly. You wouldn't expect errors in admission insurance to cover you in that case. Uh, Why would you expect it to cover you in a case where someone commits an act of cyber theft? I mean, I guess maybe you're saying we made an error in sending $500,000 to the wrong person rather than right. the person we should have. But, <laughs> Just a little, little, little goof there, yeah. Right, but, but <laughs> I mean, but that's, again, that might not be an error. I mean, you're expecting that to happen? I think I agree with this. I think they should have some cyber policy here that would protect them for this. Right, so interesting case, uh, touches on a lot of things we've talked about, but again, the, the lesson here is, just because you think you may be covered for something, it's worth a second look. Just... Now, maybe as a course of your doing your regular business as we're uh, you know heading into this new year, uh, it's a good time to uh, have a conversation with whoever takes care of these things for you and just double check, make sure that you are indeed covered for the things that you believe you are covered for. Right. All right. Well, that is my story this week. What do you have for us, Joe? Dave, my story comes directly from Facebook, from mm. a Facebook blog posting over on their news site. And they took action against two groups of uh, hackers, in quotes, uh, APT-32, which is in Vietnam, that's Ocean Lotus. We talked about them a couple weeks ago with their inauthentic news sites. And then another group based in Bangladesh. The Bangladeshi group targeted local activists, journalists, and religious minorities, including people living abroad, to compromise their accounts. Or, in some cases, they had their accounts disabled by Facebook. And they did this by abusing Facebook's policy, right? So they had an orchestrated campaign to say that these people either had some kind of alleged impersonation, intellectual property infringements, or nudity or terrorism, right? (laughs) And Facebook, if you get enough people saying that, Facebook will just shut your account down. And these people exploited that and said, well, we don't like what this guy says, so let's just report him. 
mm-hmm. a bunch of times. And that's what Gang happened. up on them. Yeah, yeah. Yep. This was done by two organizations in Bangladesh. Uh, one organization called Don's Team, also known as Defensive Nations, and the Crime Research and Analysis Foundation, or CRAF. And they appear to be operating across numerous internet services. So they're not just on Facebook. They're using other services as well, maybe LinkedIn and or Twitter or and just email. These two organizations collaborated on Facebook in order to perform these account takedowns. Uh, but they also hacked people's accounts and their pages and used some of the compromised accounts for their own purposes, including amplifying their own content. And on at least one occasion, they compromised someone's account who was the administrator of a page that they didn't like. So they, mm. as the administrator, they went in, booted all the other administrators, and then disabled the page. So they, wow. they shut down some content. One of the things Facebook says in this release that they have here is that their investigation suggests that these targeted hacking attempts were likely carried out through a number of off-platform tactics, including email and device compromise or abuse of the account recovery process. So Hmm. these organizations know who the people that are that they're targeting, and they have a bunch of probably open source intelligence or maybe, maybe even some human intelligence on how to get in touch with these people that they're going to victimize here. So they they can send an email impersonating Facebook. And then this is a standard phishing attack where I get your Facebook credentials and I can log in as you and do all kinds of terrible things. Ocean Lotus, however, targeted Vietnamese human rights activists locally and abroad, various foreign governments, including those of Laos and Cambodia, non-governmental organizations, news agencies, and a number of businesses across information technology, hospitality, agriculture, hospitals, retail, auto industry, and mobile services. That's a broad swath of industries, isn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a lot of people. Some of the social engineering techniques that Ocean Lotus used was they created fictitious personas across the internet, not just on Facebook. And they were posing as activists, business entities, and of course they used the romantic lures, Dave, because Mm, that's mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. effective. But I think also very effective is posing as an activist. Nothing makes you as an activist more susceptible to paying attention to somebody than finding somebody that agrees with you on just about everything. And these business entities, of course, I think that was an opportunity for people to make a profit or they were presented with what they thought was an opportunity to make a profit. That's another motivation. So all these are are really good ways to get into somebody's head and socially engineer them. This is probably the most interesting part of the story here. These efforts often involve creating what they call backstops for these fake personas and fake organizations. These guys went out on the internet and set up websites and other information that put it out there so that it would appear more legitimate under scrutiny. And Facebook said even their security organization found these things and was like, well, maybe these guys are real. But eventually they realized they weren't. Some pages were designed to lure particular followers for later phishing and malware targeting, which we see a lot. They did a few things aside from social engineering. They had malicious apps in the Google Play Store so that they could get a wide range of permissions on the user's device and survey people's devices and get get information off the devices. We've talked about this before as well, that when there's an app on your phone, the amount of information that app is capable of sending to people is remarkable. And if it's demanding a lot of permissions, you should probably just not install it. Fortunately, now with the later versions of Android, Android tells you, hey, here's a list of things this app is going to want access to. That didn't used to be the case. You know, back when they still had those operating system names like ice cream sandwich and all that. <laughs> I can't stand that, by the way. I, li- I just like numbers for my version. <laughs> but okay. th- they didn't tell you what you were doing. You had to look at the app once you installed it. Or uh, I think before you installed it, you could see you had to actually take the action. Now the operating system tells you what's going on, which is much better. Ocean Lotus was doing malware propagation. They compromised websites 
and created their own. And we, I think that's referring to the story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that obfuscated malicious JavaScript as part of their watering hole attack to target browser information. It's funny that Facebook points this out because this is kind of exactly what they do as well to track people. Um, <laughs> that people that aren't even Facebook users get tracked by Facebook, which is amazing. One of the things they did was they built custom malware capable of detecting the type of operating system that the target was using, and then sending a tailored payload that executes malicious code. They also use file sharing services that host malicious files, which was interesting. Most recently, they were using shortened links to deliver malware. We've talked about this technique before as well. I mean, this group is doing it all. And then they were using dynamic link libraries that were sideloaded on Microsoft Windows. I don't know how that happens technically, but I'll, I'll have to look into that one. I have one closing point about this, Dave. And Facebook says that in the article, they've been tracking the action against Ocean Lotus for several years. That means they've been taking these sites down or these these uh, accounts down over and over and over again. And Facebook here hasn't really dismantled anything that can't be rebuilt. In fact, uh, these actors are already back on Facebook, probably, and using uh, the same techniques to do the same thing over and over again. Facebook didn't change anything fundamentally here. The system is still capable of doing exactly what it was doing before. The only difference is now Ocean Lotus and these Bangladeshi groups have to go out and create new accounts. Mm-hmm. And that's not that much of a hurdle. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of something I, I've wondered about often, when, particularly when it comes to Facebook, which I, I am no longer on because <laughs> right. I'm not a fan, which is, you know, and I, it's not just Facebook, but you'll hear these platforms, they'll, you'll, you'll say, well, why can't you do a better job of policing this? And they'll say, well, we can't do that at scale. And my response is, well, then maybe you shouldn't do that at all. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, to me, it's like uh, saying to, um, you know, you have a factory that's dumping toxic waste into the river and you say, well, why, why can't you stop dumping waste into the river? And they say, well, we can't do that at scale. I say, well, then don't do that at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, that, I admit a little personal bias against Facebook, but it's, it's something that leaves me scratching my head. Yeah. If I could quit Facebook tomorrow, I would. I, I, I've said that many times as well. Um, <laughs> Facebook but, is the Philip Morris of our age. Right. Exactly. That is an excellent, an excellent analogy. Um, <laughs> the only problem is I don't use it a lot. I'm not on there every day, but I do have the messenger service on my phone. So in case some relatives want to get in touch with me, they can. That's really the only use case I use anymore on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I can't tell my aunt who is kind of the matriarch of, of the family. Yeah, I'm, I'm switching over to Telegram. She'd be like, I don't know how to use Telegram, and I'm not going to learn how to use Telegram. Sure. sure. Stay on Facebook, Joe. Okay. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) ma'am. All right. Well, interesting uh, story for sure. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, for our first time, we have a catch of the day from me. (laughs) Okay. I reeled this one in last night on LinkedIn. Hmm. I got a, uh, a connection request. We've talked about how I don't scrutinize my connection requests on LinkedIn as much as I do, say, a friend request on Facebook or a follow on Twitter because it's a professional social networking site. But uh, this one looked a little bit weird to me, and it w- came from somebody named Mike Steve. And <laughs> actually, I'm going to go ahead and read this today, Dave. I'm going to give you the week off. All right. At the top of his profile, it says, Medical Doctor at American Hospital Association. Contact me for your cryptocurrency investment for your extra income. (laughs) No red flags there. Right, exactly. That was the first. (laughs) I was like, oh, I think I have a catch of the day. (laughs) And the, the about section is great. It's fantastic. You ready for this? Yeah. As you can see in my profile, my interests range from healthcare to cryptocurrency and other aspects of investment. 
I am currently working as a doctor and also cryptocurrency guru as such am exposed to many different areas within the discipline. From being involved in several research projects that have helped shape the current state of healthcare, as well as contributing to some medical writing and cryptocurrency trading. I believe these experiences have given me a very unique skill set that allows me to be adaptable to any situation that is presented to me. In any job, I will always try and make the best out of the situation to achieve the optimal outcome for all involved. Mm. So how much did you invest? Millions, Dave. (laughs) Put all my retirement savings with this guy, Dr. Mike Steve. The picture on this profile is a very handsome young man, and he has a stethoscope around his neck, which is the telltale sign that the man is actually a doctor, right? (laughs) Yeah, of course. How could you? He's legit, of course. His shirt even says Dr. Mike on it, and um, his name is Mike (laughs) Steve, which uh, yeah, I've I've met a lot of people with uh, European names. I've never met anybody with the last name Steve. Mm, mm Mm-mm. Um, mm-hmm. Steven, Stevens, yes, but Steve, no. Anyway, this stood out as a red flag. If you if you do a reverse Google image search on him, his uh, image shows up as all kinds of fraudulent. The image is just a stock photo from marketing, and uh, you can find all kinds of other pictures of this guy. He's a model, is what he is. Yeah, and yeah. somebody is using his account here. I'm going to report this account to LinkedIn, and let me do that right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> all right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of uh, speaking with Carrie O'Connor Collaja. She's from an organization called Authentics, and uh, our conversation focused on fraud in the financial services and payment industry. Here's my conversation with Carrie O'Connor Collaja. The magnitude of fraud is tremendous. Fraud in general and financial fraud, you know, started almost a thousand plus years ago when the first instance was noted of that someone impersonated somebody else or misbehaved in in order to benefit financially from a situation. What we found, Dave, is that in the last you know six to nine months, there's been an 300% increase in fraud in general, a majority of that definitely happening in within the financial sector. And the evidence of that is based on what we're seeing, particularly right now in the U.S. with unemployment fraud, PPP fraud, identity fraud being at the core of all of this. And the growth, you know, is bringing us to a state of where there could be close to $42 billion um, in fraudulent activity that is committed in 2020. And one of the big reasons for that is this move to society, and particularly in the COVID age, moving more and more online. And every moment of our lives, whether it's we're looking at our watch or we're logging into our computer or we have a connected um, appliance in our home is when we're transferring information. And each time we transfer that information with the endpoint, you know, opens up a potential door for a fraudulent attack. This year, the growth in fraud has been tremendous because of each of us living our lives, whether we work, we play, we live online. How much of this is opportunistic in terms of coming after folks who may be not their best emotionally? I think we're all feeling a bit frayed around the edges these days from COVID for lots of reasons. And I suspect that makes people more vulnerable and the bad guys capitalize on that. It absolutely is the case. You know, as with any human and any of us, and we can identify with that, you know, as we have moments of doubt or we're feeling vulnerable or there's a million things in our lives that are created, you know, fragmentation in our mind share. 
it creates an opportunity to be more vulnerable. And, you know, I can even say is, is myself when there's a lot of attacks that are happening, you know, within the employer sector. And those of us who use Microsoft-based products, you know, there's, you know, attacks happening where um, phishing attempts, where they attempt to be a report from Microsoft of an access to a file that you've gotten. There's reports of Google even. I just heard this the other day where people are impersonating that an individual where they want to share a Google Doc with you on Google Drive, but it's actually not legitimate. And that not being legitimate, when you click on it, opens up the world to you being attacked. So it absolutely is an issue. And then that's one of the reasons why we're seeing an increase in fraud. And it's not just about those people like you and me who may be very attuned to being cautious about every keystroke we make as we're online. But there's you know, a whole population that aren't digitally native and they're just trying to survive, Dave. And, and they're trying to figure out a way in which their world can continue to exist in in this new normal. Can you give us some insights on two things? I mean, sort of the, you know, the bread and butter fraud prevention that fintech organizations rely on, but then also where are we in terms of the cutting edge? Whether it's fintech, I'll say fintech financial services, you know, within that entire realm, the big trajectory over the last couple of years is all around KYC, KYB. So know your customer know your business. We're now seeing kind of an emergence of know your employee. And the fraud checks that have happened in the past tend to happen up front um, in the customer journey. So if I want to open up a bank account or I want to open up an account to move money to a friend, a P2P transaction, there's a set of checks and balances that are put in place in order to reassure the institution or that fintech that I am who I say I am. There's been a lot of advances in how do you make that determination? Everything from capturing your driver's license or a government-issued ID to uh, checking to see whether you're a live person and if your um, selfie matches the picture on the ID to triangulating geolocation and behavioral-based data. But what's really shifted is you know, these checks don't just need to happen at the beginning of a customer relationship with an entity, whether it's a fintech or any enterprise, but it has to happen in a continuous way. We've seen a lot of childhood identity fraud, where fraudsters will take over an account of someone who's not 18 yet and will exist as that person. And that is not known to that individual until they become 18. And, you know, effectively, they have a whole host of opportunities in front of them and and try to go after credit and open up an account. The reality is, is that we've had to now shift and the whole sector has shifted to how do we ensure the checks and balances throughout an entire customer journey with any company um, so that the person on the other end of the transaction is really who they say they are. And the cutting edge is a multiple fold. When you come into identity fraud, the fastest growing type of fraud in identity fraud is synthetic fraud. Hmm. And what synthetic fraud is, is that a fraudster will take fake data and real data and pull it together. And they do it in such a sophisticated manner that the human eye or an algorithm can't detect it. 
However, what the fraudsters do is they take a template. Let's just take an ID of a Nevada driver's license. Mm. And they may, you know, keep the right document number that's legit, keep the face on, you know, an individual picture on there that's legit, but change the address. They'll change something minor. And it may not be detected. There's a high likelihood it won't. But what they'll attempt to continue to do, whether it's with, you know, the same company or across a series of companies, is use that same template. And so these patterns and abnormalities that can now be detected with machine learning techniques, we're able to pick up on and then stop that fraud. But the sophistication, Dave, is is, is unbelievable. I know when I was 16, I remember those days when my friends would have a fake ID and try to pass it off to maybe, you know, get a little bit of alcohol here and there. Right. And it worked um, unbelievably, but it, <laughs> it, it no longer does. And I'm not going to tell my kids that, um, nor was I that person who did it. I will not, I will not admit not. to that. Um, so the shift to continuously verifying, the shift to, you know, detecting synthetic fraud, and then the shift, Dave, to looking at layering different type of defense techniques, depending on the risk of a transaction. So in a world where I'm, you know, applying for a a PPP loan, it may not be enough to just submit that who I am and some information about me, but I may also need to submit a year's worth of financial information for my business. Maybe I have to do a selfie check. Maybe I have to share something else. And so these different layers of defense are effectively what's becoming the new norm in the world that we live in. Are we facing a challenge here of making sure that people aren't left behind? That if, you know, if if you're someone who doesn't have the latest mobile device or, you know, the highest speed internet connection, that doesn't mean that you're not entitled to these sort of protections. Hi, you're asking a question that I've pondered for a good part of my career and I'm very passionate about, which is how does technology enable inclusion versus being a prohibitor of inclusion And since I started 25 years ago, the world looks very, very different. 90% of U.S. citizens now have an internet connection, at least one digital device, and over 80% of them have actually a smartphone. I mean, the cost of technology has gone down. We've also seen behavior around the world where uh, an individual would rather pay for their mobile service rather than potentially paying for food on the table because it's become mm-hmm. such an important part of our day to day, particularly in some developing countries where the only way in which money moves is through the ISP providers that are out there, whether it's, you know, in Kenya or other places. So I share this with you because I actually think it can be an, an enabler for inclusion when you the years I've spent looking at financial inclusion Yes, one element of that has been, does someone have access to the internet or to some sort of connected device? But more importantly, Dave, it's about, does the individual have an ID? And is the individual registered or, you know, in the digital sphere? And the reality is, is that there's 3.2 billion individuals that don't have a digital trail and a billion people who don't have a government-issued ID. And so the challenge with inclusion is, you know, how do we ensure that those people can be included in our, you know, economy as a whole? And you you don't necessarily have to have a government issued ID if there's other bits of information that prove who you say you are. Although we believe that that is the foundation that really links the physical to the digital individual these days. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, um, I'm trying to envision, you know, back to to your point earlier of – you know, walking up to the uh, the entrance of uh, of that bar or that nightclub, and and uh, you know, uh, holding up my phone rather than handing over my driver's license. 
Mm-hmm. There is a another big shift we're seeing is zero knowledge proof, which is mm. the ability to inform a party that you are, let's say in this scenario, of an age to get into that bar so that you are an, of an age of 21. But right. doing that without disclosing, you know, my month, my birth, my year, my name. So when you, we used to hand over uh, that driver's license in order to get, you know, into a bar, we're handing over a lot of information about who we are. Right. And it's not necessarily necessary because all you really need to know is, are you of in my days, it was 18 versus 21 right. um, in order to proceed. And so there there are technologies now that are enabling you know, privacy, so data privacy and consumer privacy, while also enabling access. And the challenge for all of us in the space of fighting fraud and protecting individuals' identities in order to ensure that people can you know, experience and enjoy safer business services is that we find ways to do that together. Uh, which is, you know, all about, you know, how do we bring and we unify the sector to fight against fraud? Because that's exactly how they create vulnerabilities with all of us. All right, Joe, what do you think? Interesting interview, Dave. I liked it a lot. One of my favorite things that Kerry talks about up front is fraud with a financial motivation is at least a thousand years old. Right. <laughs> I think that that's the oldest evidence we have of it. I'm sure it's older than that. Right. Right. It's the second oldest profession. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's just now instead of looking at it from, you know, me forging documents to say I'm noble or whatever, we're now looking at uh, the same thing, but with the paycheck protection program. And people are scamming that rather than trying to scam some lord out of his uh, out of his sack of gold. Right. <laughs> right. $42 billion in fraud in 2020. That's that's a lot of fraud, Dave. Yeah, That's, pretty soon uh, you're talking about real money. Yeah, exactly. Dave, good question on the increase of our susceptibility to these kind of attacks because of the uh, the fact that we're all isolated in this pandemic and the, the mental strain that puts on us. I think that's, mm. a, that's a good observation. The phishing lure is access to an MS document and Google Cloud Services documents. We've seen this a lot. In fact, we've even seen things where the document itself isn't malicious. It just contains a link to a website and people, for some reason, click on it and that link is malicious. So Google can't even do much outside of maybe examining the link. I mean, then you run into the question of, do I want them doing that to all the documents, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe I do. I, I don't know. That's just a question that people have to answer for themselves. Fraud checks happen up front in the customer relationship at banks, right? You know that when you go into a bank, you have to set up an account. And right. you have to bring in all kinds of documents and everything. I think that Carrie is absolutely onto something here when she says this needs to become something more continuous. It does need to become more continuous. We need to do this on a more constant basis, if not regular. We are hearing again that synthetic fraud is the fastest growing kind of fraud. And I like how she breaks it down. It's, it's really interesting for me to listen to uh, talk of synthetic fraud. I think that's absolutely fascinating that people can just make people up and play that game for a little while even getting credit cards and paying off balances and then trying to get more and more loans and then eventually essentially just disappearing with a large sack of cash. Right. And finally, the last thing uh, she was talking about zero knowledge proofs. Uh, the example she cites here for zero knowledge proofs are exactly the same uh, example I use when I'm describing zero knowledge proofs to somebody. The math behind a zero logic proof is is remarkably complicated. And I've actually sat in Matt Green's office and had him explain it to me and walked out of there going, <laughs> 
I lack the fundamental understanding to <laughs> the fundamental information to understand what, what goes on here. Um, right. I'm not a Which is what Matthew Green does best. <laughs> right? And it's a really great idea because you can verify information and you know the information is verified, but you may not even know what the information is, right? And the case in point that Carrie makes here is buying alcohol. You need to be 21, but when they say, prove to me you're 21, they say, give me your driver's license, <laughs> right? Right which has so much more information on it that you shouldn't be giving away to everybody. You just need to demonstrate that you're 21. And that's all the person behind the counter needs to know. Right. Anyway, that's also my favorite example for describing zero knowledge proofs to people. And I Mm. think that uh, that's going to have to come up more in banking where we're saying, yes, this is me. And here's a way for me to mathematically prove it's me without giving you too much more information. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Carrie for joining us. Again, uh, the organization that uh, she represents is called Authentics. Uh, Check that out if you'd like more information about the things that uh, she and her team are up to. We want to thank all of you for listening. That is our show. Of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 